Hey there and welcome to another episode of The Walk. Recording this on a grey afternoon. I can hear one of the churches tolling their bells. It is overcast. There is a slight drizzle. Thankfully it's not raining. Although it may get worse while I'm walking. We'll see. I'm used to walking outside in the rain now. Uh, a little bit more thanks to the uh, the training that I'm following as I shared with you before I've joined uh, a group of runners uh, and together with a trainer we train twice a week on Tuesday evening that's always uh, tricky because it's very dark outside we start at 7.30pm so we have to run in uh, a quiet neighborhood, uh, about 50, a 15-minute run from here. And it's, uh, it's it, nice in the woods and everything. That's the only place where you can run on regular roads without too much traffic, which, of course, when you're running in the dark, is always a bit of a, a liability. And uh, I dress up like a Christmas tree <laughs> when I go run <laughs> because... Uh, uh, a lot of the running gear that I have, the uh, thermal clothing that I bought for uh, for the for the cold winter months, is is all black. So in order to be visible, you have to wear kind of a it's like a strap-on light. So you've got three bright lights in white in the front, and then. Uh, on the back, eh, there are three red lights, and that's, you know, I look like a Christmas tree. But thankfully, I'm not the only one, because we all wear that sort of stuff. And then on Saturday morning, actually this uh, past Saturday, I joined the group for the first time. We also run, uh, but this time it's in the, in the morning, so it's light, and we go run in the woods, which is fantastic. As uh, I mentioned before, uh, the, the, uh, the area here um, near where I live is beautiful. You've got... Lots of forests, uh, literally five minutes away from where I live. And so we run through the woods. Um, Last Saturday, it was like today. So it was a bit of a drizzle. It was a lot colder than today. Um, And there was a lot of mud as well. So it it was tricky to find uh, courses or trajectories where you could run without getting too dirty but uh, but it was nice I'm really enjoying running outside and uh, th- being part of a group also helps me to get over that um, that comfort creature in me like the the person or the part of me that when whenever it's cold and dark and, and raining or snowing wants to be inside uh, cuddled up on a on a couch uh, with a hot cup of chocolate reading a book (laughs) and so knowing that there are people waiting for you and that they are counting on you being there as well is a is just what I needed and uh, and so I'm I've been kind of and the first time it's like oh my gosh I can't believe how cold it is how dark it is I, I I don't know if I want this and then after five minutes you're kind of used to it and because you're running you warm up so it is, uh, it's actually quite nice. And when you get back home, you appreciate the heat so much more because you've been out in the cold for two hours. 
and uh, this is this is good training. So now I'm, I'm I don't know. I already feel like after a few weeks, I don't really care what kind of weather it is. I just go outside and do what I have to do. So it's it's a part of a, a pattern, a new pattern that I'm learning, and being part of a group really helps to establish this new routine. Another thing that I'm definitely uh, trying to get used to is the different type of training. I've always been a long distance runner, and one of the one of the main reasons that I like running so much is that you can step away from literally step away from the work the the stress the deadlines and i can just i can just run i just uh, turn off my brain listen to an audiobook or very often i don't listen to anything at all i just run and then i have time to think or time to pray or time to just enjoy nature and uh it's that uh it's an activity that uh, that is not very distracting. You're just running there. You can't do much else. I can't really look at my social media or anything. And I, I, I notice that I need those moments during the week where where I can do that. But with a, with a group training, and especially now that I have a a, a a real trainer, this is so much harder than what I'm used to. Because you're constantly adapting. Uh, you have, oops, rain is starting to intensify a little bit. Maybe I should have taken uh, an umbrella with me. I'm actually uh, heading towards uh, Wageningen, the town of Father Henry. And I need to get some uh, stuff from a store for mass. Uh, but I'll get to that once I finish my little running story so the trainer um, tries to improve our speed our stamina um, and our overall form by letting us do all sorts of first warming up exercises uh, stretching push-ups <laughs> that by itself is already like oh my gosh I don't think I've ever done this before but it's very good for the overall loosening of your muscles and you you lower the risk of injury um, and then a, a lot of what we do on both days is speed work, where the whole trick is to uh, constantly push your, your, your body and push it back and slow down and intensify. And uh, it is one of the proven effects of that is that your heart gets much stronger. Your overall stamina and speed uh, can improve tremendously when you do what they call interval training, where it's just high intensity, low intensity, high intensity, low intensity. So those two hours uh, consist of many, many sequences of you run for uh, 400 meters at uh, like level three. I think the top level is level five. That would be like a sprint, like a 400 meter sprint where your heart is going to maximum. And then four is something you would do um, for a short short track race. And then three is uh, a speed that you can maintain for about um, an hour or so. For me, that's all new. I'd never really um, paid attention to, to levels like that. So I constantly have to uh, ask, am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? And especially going slower. 
is uh, is hard for me because I'm just used at used to running at one steady pace and you kind of forget about things but this type of training this type of running is the opposite of what I've ever done it's constantly like oh I gotta change I gotta change which brings me to the main theme of this after this long introduction now that I, 80% of my listeners have stopped listening <laughs> brings me to the point of uh, what I wanted to share with you today which is the benefit of change and the the risk of the risk and also the benefit of existing pathways in your behavior in your brain in your body and the reason that I wanted to bring this up is that I've been reading a couple of books for my Goodreads reading challenge um, so for those of you that don't know what that is it's a Goodreads is a, a website where you can log your reading progress uh, so you can uh, uh, mark down the books that you've read write a review read other people's reviews which was bought by Amazon a couple of years ago obviously because they want to sell more books <laughs> so and it's a it's a, it's a website that has been around for a number of years and that I've started using I think about three years ago and I, I love it it's such a uh, again, it's the power of community. I've got a number of people that follow me, and I can share with them what I read, and they can share their reviews and their tips. Um, so that gives me a lot of ideas on what to read next. And so, through Goodreads and through um, some browsing on there, I came across a couple of books on um, the what they call the happy brain chemicals. So this is. Um, Part of uh, neuroscience. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm just an amateur in that. I'm, I don't have the necessary formation to, to read uh, scientific material on that. But I like these popularized books where that kind of break it down and explain how a lot of the things we feel and how we feel and how we and even what we do is because certain chemicals in our brain are released uh, and, and and they're all well, you, you've heard of those different chemicals you've got uh, oh now I gotta name them and I didn't take any notes so <laughs> well it's like adrenaline and uh, oh boy what else do we have I know leptin when you're hungry I'm not sure if that's a chemical <laughs> um, you've got the uh Oh, I should have written this down. Anyway, you've got like um, happy chemicals, chemicals that uh, will increase your fight or flight uh, readiness, that sort of stuff. Um, maybe, you know what? <laughs> I'll refer you to my other podcast, my regular show, where I do book reviews and then I'll have my, my reading notes and I can tell you more about those chemicals as if I know what I'm talking about. But what these books really helped me to understand is how much of uh, our behavior um, rests on pathways, neural pathways, that have been created at a very early age. So it's basically the, the things that we learn from our parents in our early years as a child. Uh, 
the behavior that we we see with other people and have copied for ourselves, they are all part of this basically survival mechanism. It's it's what keeps us alive, what helps us thrive as a as a species, um, and it helps us to seek food when we're hungry, uh, to be able to run when we're uh, threatened, uh, get increase our social status um, because that, uh, at least from an evolutionary point of view, increases the uh, survival rate and uh, status can also help you um, uh, get more, you know, better offspring and stuff like that. So this is, this goes back to uh, also general um, n- neuroscience when it comes to, you know, any animal species here on on earth and what i what i really liked about the last couple of books that i've read is how they make it plausible that um those those chemicals in itself are neutral of course they um they just this is the way that we that we're built um however you can also change those pathways in your brain you can you can modify the the release of those chemicals by changing um, your your own attitude by making different choices by learning new habits, and so change is uh, is a very uh, the the let's say the ability to change can really help you to 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 feel better and maybe react in a more um, uh, in a better way, how do I say that? In, um, in, in a way that is more beneficial to us than other mechanisms that we use to soothe ourselves or to calm ourselves. And uh, an interesting chapter was on uh, how often people get addicted to negative behavior. For example, cynicism. That is something that we've been confronted with for years now, especially in social media, where people are super cynical uh they have a tendency to always complain um not to mention of course the uh recent search in conspiracy theories and groups around that this book explains where that comes from there is actually a benefit that we're seeking subconsciously from those behaviors because it makes us feel part of a group um Adapting our behavior to the norms within that group gives us social status. That gives us a feeling of safety. It enhances our survival uh, chances within that group. And once you start to see how it functions, how it works, you start. You also start to understand why this is such a widespread phenomenon. Why, as a society almost, you can get addicted to... Um, to a negative attitude, to criticism, to even aggressive behavior can be part of that. So the, the current political climate in, in a lot of our countries um, is not just random and it's also not part of a, like a big conspiracy or anything, but it is part of how we are wired and react to situations that we label as a menace. The thing is, perceived menace and a real threat often not the same. So you can change your view on the world. You can choose to 
look at the positive side of life and thereby, if you do that consistently, you will change those pathways. You will change those... Um, the, the, even the release of chemicals in your brain, you will start to react differently, and which ultimately <laughs> gives you a better feeling. Because the, the problem with uh, this negative or cynical or even angry addiction is that you need to reactivate it time and again because chemicals are only released for specific purposes. I need to step aside here because I'm walking on a road without um, a pedestrian uh, path here. So I'm currently on the red uh, concrete that indicates that this is actually for bikes. I, I don't know why there are so few walk walkways is that how you call it but so so little pavement here in and around uh Benicom where i live because people love to walk <laughs> maybe it's because of these old trees they probably have been here for half a half a century and they don't want to cut them down and so they are just restrained they're kind of held back by the original width of the of the road or something like that but anyway Speaking of pathways, <laughs> that's often uh, what happens in our brain is that we, we, we tend to react the way that we have learned to react over the years. And sometimes you're, or often you're not even aware of, of those pathways and of those encrusted behaviors. Um, but I'd rather renew like the positive feelings <laughs> And try to motivate myself in that direction than, than uh, stepping into this, this ongoing cycle of negativity and, uh, and cynicism. If there's one thing that I always told myself um, from the moment I got my vocation to the priesthood was I, will, I don't want to ever be cynical. Um, I grew up in a time where polarization in the Catholic Church was huge, also in society. And I saw a lot of priests and church people, even in my own family, lots of people who became super cynical, like, oh, well, it's all going downhill. The church is going to disappear. And even now, in, in the current day and age, where secularization is much bigger than it was when I was young, um, you've got this uh, attitude, attitude that is just a defense mechanism. It's a, way, it's a coping mechanism of like, oh, it's all going downhill. We are the last of our kind. The Catholic Church will disappear. Um, uh, there is a lot of that doom and gloom thinking in my own diocese uh, where uh, there is just this... People think that, well, this is just... We're in the end phase. And some people also use apocalyptic language for that. Uh, because, and, and this is also, I was surprised that that was addressed in the book, that there is comfort in telling yourself that you are the last of your kind. That, uh, you see that also in um, climate pessimism. You know, oh, the world is going to hell. <laughs> it's, it's all going to disappear. We, this is not salvageable anymore. We cannot change anything anymore. Uh... And, and, and you see that same attitude in, in churches where people are like, oh, Christianity is disappearing. People have, becoming, have become so individualistic, so egotistic. 
that there is no room for God anymore, so let's just close our churches and give up. That's basically what they're saying. The thing is, that too comes from a desire to feel safe. To, to know that, well, you know what? Even though the situation is not perfect, uh, it's all going to be over any, anyway. So it makes you feel special when you are part of that last generation, just as it makes people feel special when they're part of a conspiracy theory uh, group or subgroup. You see a lot of that behavior, and I never thought about what causes that kind of behavior. And it's so universalized during this, these COVID times that it makes total sense that this is something that is kind of built in. What I also uh, appreciated of the books that I read, and again, for the titles, I'll refer you to, to my regular podcast, uh, is that it doesn't become deterministic, which, which could is, a, I think, a temptation for uh, neuroscientists. I, I once was in a talk show, and as usually on TV when you're invited to, uh, uh, to, to be part of a talk show, there are a number of people around the table, and they will address a number of topics, and you're also invited to chime in on other people's topics. And so there was this neuroscientist, a very famous one in the Netherlands, who wrote a number of books. And I think the title of one of his most, his bestseller was We Are Our Brain. And during the TV show, it was already a bit, it was, you know, kind and polite, but also very cynical towards anything that had to do with religion. According to them, that is, you know, there is no room for for anything that, that surpasses our, what we can measure scientifically, um, what we can verify. And it's all probably just uh, an illusion, something that our prefrontal cortex is creating. And you know what? From, a, from the perspective, from the scientific perspective of a neuroscientist, I understand that, that attitude. Because, yes, you cannot measure metaphysical things. They are, by, by its essence, metaphysical. We can only measure and verify the physical, but what is beyond that, what transcends it, the domain of the spirit, you may be able to explain uh, what in, in theology I would call, and even in philosophy we call the support system. But it doesn't explain the metaphysical dimensions of life uh, in, in its totality. So uh, an analogy would be, you know, love. You can explain love just from a point of view of evolutionary theory, neuroscience, science. Uh, it's just people seeking for the perfect mate. Uh, when we think we found one, it releases chemicals. Those chemicals in our brain pushes to act, to procreate, and uh, to protect our offspring. Is that the definition of love? I would say anyone who knows or who thinks that he loves in life would, would resist that reduction of love to just processes, as if there's no free will, as if there's nothing, nothing like 
uh, love that surpasses even our instincts and our the way that we are programmed and the the, the neurobiology. So, uh, and and you see that often that that scientists have uh, a tendency, especially today, to narrow their view to what they know and and try to kind of uh, uh, poo-poo anything that they feel is is outside of their you know scientific reach and of course i'm i'm not saying that we should uh not favor science on the contrary uh science is the pursuit of truth just as philosophy and, and theology uh is a, a form of pursuing the truth and trying to find out uh, why we are here and, uh, and how we can make this world a better place and, more importantly, how we can all reach for this better place that is beyond this world. Uh, so science is, is super important from a Catholic point of view, but it is not the explanation for everything. It's... it's um, it's like I can I can explain how Rembrandt painted. I can I can describe the instruments that he used, um, the styles that he copied and and initiated, and how he was influenced, and how he, his his work evolved over time. But does that explain the genius of Rembrandt? Does it explain everything? No. He, art, by definition, is more than the sum of its of its elements, right? It's, there is something transcendent in, in art. And we all kind of intuitively know it. It's just that you can't put your finger on it because it's something that you can't put your finger on. <laughs> if you see what I mean. So I appreciated the, uh, the writer of the books that I read um, leaves room for, for religion, leaves room for um, the aspirations the ideals of people to change the world and to change themselves and so all that got me thinking about you know my own behavior and good books do that they make you think they make you reflect upon yourself and upon your your role in life and so i uh while reading the book i realized that wait a minute, I think there's a lot in my, my own behavior and the choices that I make or the, the things that I don't do, my fears, my, uh, my, my, my both my positive and my negative feelings. There is a lot of neurobiology going on there. And uh, especially the, the parts where it, uh, it demonstrates with all sorts of anecdotes and research how, how often um, early neural pathways from our youth um, uh, continue to function and are now have become highways of behavior in our, in our uh, adult life. I was thinking, oh my gosh, that is so me. And I know that a number of the things that I've struggled with this year um, directly connect with these early childhood sometimes even traumas, sometimes just behavior that I copied or uh, a worldview that I received from the, the people that brought, that brought me up, that edu- educated me. And so I was going through 
the list of things that that I've I've been struggling with. Um, one, of course, is this feeling of having to let go. Uh, this is the year of letting go for me. This my my life this year was like a frozen movie. <laughs> let it go. Um, it has not always been a voluntary process, as you know. Uh, I have first the first thing I had to let go of is my health. Having worked so hard for 15 years on becoming a runner, um, eating healthy, living a balanced life, all that was out of the window in in a fraction of a of a week when I got COVID, and it uh, knocked me out for several weeks, and then uh, had uh, long-term effects on my health. Most. Uh, most of them related to just my energy levels. They were so I was so tired all the time, and uh, it took me months to recover from that. And and there are even times that I wonder if I am totally rid of the uh, lasting effects of of COVID. Of course, it's still very difficult for um, the medical sector to determine what are the long lasting effects of COVID. And especially with kind of diffuse um, problems like fatigue, that could be caused by so many different things. Um, but I noticed just recently that um, I've had these days where I'm just knocked out, and I just I can't I can barely stand on my feet. That's how tired I am, and it can't be explained just by you know the few hours of the week that I'm running, or maybe a. A night where I didn't sleep that well because the radiators are making a ticking noise that wakes me up. It, it's it's something. It's the fatigue is way too big to be explained away by these incidental problems. So and it it feels very much like the extreme fatigue that I had in in January February when I was still recovering from long COVID. So maybe anyway, that's just how it is. Uh, I'm already so there is there is a there are two ways to look at this. The first one is, oh my gosh, I was so healthy, and now COVID has robbed me of everything, and oh, I'm never going to be the same again. How is that going to help? Of course, it kind of makes you feel good to complain about that, and especially when other people tell you, oh yes, we're so sorry for you, and we support you. Prayers, thoughts, and prayers. That very sh- briefly gives us some. The feeling that I'm not alone, that I feel supported, and I'm again, I'm not trying to negate the value of that, but it's for yourself. It's not the best way to uh, to be to be happy, because you're basically telling yourself how unhappy you are. And so the 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 trick there, if you want to reprogram that pathway in your brain, that always tends to fall into the same uh, feelings of. of of pitying yourself and f- feeling victimized, the the best way is to constantly uh, turn that around and look at the things that are positive, the things that you can do. I, I mean, I ran the marathon of Rotterdam in my all-time record time, and just recently, my trainer told me, if you train, if you continue to train with me for the next couple of months I think you can run a marathon under in under three hours and 30 minutes I was like what dude I'm 53 (laughs) 
that would be amazing. But it's like that is there is I've I've made so much progress in these past few months. There is so much positive happening on the health side. Who am I to complain about these incidental days that I'm just so tired that I have to go sleep and then I fall into almost like a coma because I'm so super tired. Um, let's look at the upside. Let's look at all those moments where I'm s- stronger than ever. That is that is what I f- should focus on. If you do that constantly, then ultimately over time those negative thoughts will become will will diminish um, and the positive attitude will release these happy chemicals that make you feel like oh I'm on top of the world that's how I want to feel <laughs> um, this, the, the second thing that I had to let go this year of course is um, the parish where I worked for uh, almost 15 years um, I got uh, pressure to, uh, to move uh, to leave the parishes behind uh, I lost my home I had to look for another home and then I basically lost my own life for more than half a year uh, during the renovation where I was staying with Father Henry uh, in his rectory uh, it was a, a, a very testing time because I all of a sudden was forced into a situation where uh, I had to adapt constantly every single moment of the day to the rhythm of the group that lived there and even though I really appreciate the friendship and the hospitality it is still a huge it had a huge impact on uh, on, on my own day to day life and work I am a creature of habits I need a certain stability uh, because every time things change it costs energy and uh, you only have a limited amount, or I have a limited amount of energy available for, for change. And so having to basically try to survive for uh, seven months, or seven, eight months, how long has it been from April? June, July, August, September, October, November. So it's eight months uh, where all my energy was basically focused on... on, on <laughs> making sure I, I uh, get settled and the house is ready and I can get back to my life. For the first time this year, I feel like I'm now landing and I'm calming down. And it's, it's only now I start to feel like I'm, I'm living again. This is my life again. Um, so that has uh, this, this losing everything and having to rebuild almost from scratch not being even not being able to do the simple things that i that i've been doing for years and years not having a parish to celebrate mass at during the weekends now thankfully i can assist uh in in father henry's parish but just that taken away from you in a situation where there are so few priests and i was willing to continue uh to to do that and to help and and then people telling you, well, sorry, sir, but your services are no longer necessary. Please get out of this house and get out of here. That, that, uh, the struggle that I experienced, I think, is part of those uh, early childhood traumas of not being good enough. It triggered so much of that, uh, that uncertainty that I experienced as a child where I was 
a nerdy child and uh, not good at sports and uh, a kind of an outcast. That's how I experienced it. And then it, that was even amplified, I think, by my education where uh, uh, my parents uh, encouraged us to it's always a rise above it. You have to try to be better than they, than them. And uh, I think that a lot of the advice that I got as a child was to, to make sure that I excel in other things. And I think that I, you know, there is a certain truth to it. You, if you can't, if you, if you're not good at sports, and maybe you're good at something else. But it was very much focused on, still on what you could show the world. You know, you should you should prove them wrong. That was kind of the attitude that was programmed in us. And so, I think that is one of the main reasons that I was such a hard worker in school, and I always try to get you know the highest. Uh, marks of the class and I would be unhappy if I wasn't the best of the class which of course made me even more unpleasant for my classmates it just it, 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 it enhanced the problem <laughs> and uh, and I think this, this overcompensating by working hard and by trying to be the best is what ultimately created so many pathways in my brain that make me unhappy when, I'm, when I feel like I'm not doing enough. I was talking uh, with someone the other day about this, and I said, you know what, I think this is why I have such a hard time relaxing and doing something I like without immediately sharing it and putting it on YouTube and live-streaming it. Because uh, I've been programmed as a child to make sure that everything I did was useful, was showing the world that I contributed. We, a lot of the things that I loved to do as a child, you know, uh, uh, playing video games, uh, watching TV, um, uh, working in my room on cartoons or you know, that sort of stuff, or little model airplanes. Uh, it was often labeled as uh, as something that is, you know, maybe amusing, but you shouldn't do it too much because you can't be lazy. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't take this life for granted. Uh, it's this, and I'm not the only one who's been brought up like that. I'm sure that a lot of you may have had similar education where... You have to make yourself useful, you know. Don't let other people think... It was also always about perception. Don't let other people think that you are lazy. And now I'm starting to really doubt the premise of that. How is playing a video game lazy? How is that not something good? Why do I constantly feel like I'm... And and this is literally something that I feel every time I play a video game. I think... Shouldn't I be streaming this? And I, I know that this is because those pathways in my brain tell me this is lazy. This is egotistical. How often have I heard that in my youth? You know, you're, you're being selfish. Because I was in my room just being creative. And that was selfish because I should play with friends and I should be outgoing. And I'm not. <laughs> it's just not how I'm wired. I'm an introvert. And... It doesn't mean that I'm 
uh, selfish or antisocial. On the contrary. But I need to recharge my batteries. That's why I like being alone. That's why I'm actually very a, a, good, a good fit for the celibate life. Because it helps me to constantly recharge my batteries. And so when I need to be there for other people, I can be there 100%. Uh, so this, this, these feelings of guilt, you know, like, oh, I'm not being productive enough. I'm not doing enough. This over... Um, uh, this this overactive mind that keeps developing new projects, coming up with new ideas, uh, trying to do a hundred million things per day, and then being frustrated at the end of the day that I didn't get anything done. I think it all goes back to those early neural pathways of like you have to be useful, you have to work a lot, you can never really uh, relax. One, the, one of the few things that I could do that was not suspect and I was actually praised even though I thought it was part of leisure was reading reading was good for you You're reading that forms the mind and so whenever I was seen with the book which was almost always because I grew up in a time kind of before the Nintendo generation <laughs> and we only had two channels on Dutch TV and that was it there were no other ways to Watch if you if I wanted to see a movie, we had to rent a video player and and a cassette, <laughs> a VHS cassette, to watch a movie. That's so there was a lot of time to read, and reading was my safe place. And so now that I'm reading again, uh, so many books, that I feel the same. This <laughs> again, it's probably the same chemicals that release in my brain, telling me this is good, this is safe. You can do this. You don't have to feel guilty about reading. And I still share the books that I, that I read on, on Twitter. And I think at least part of that is also justifying the fact that I'm spending so much time reading. Uh, it's like, well, at least I'm sharing the books that I read and maybe someone else will, will, uh, will be inspired uh, by the books that I read to read the same books or whatever. Or to start reading altogether. So... I, I'm not saying that it's totally gone, but I'm st- at least I'm starting to become aware of how that works in my brain, and it helps me to also uh, start the process of of, of trying to rewire um, those neural pathways, and because it's it's not fun to constantly have that feeling that I I I am only worth. I'm only worth something if I, if I am valuable, if I produce things, if I make myself useful. Uh, I, I also think that... Uh, so the, the, being robbed is about letting go, uh, having to let, let go of everything that I did that made me feel like I'm useful as a priest... It, it really was a crisis moment. Like, okay, so now that I can't do almost... I can't do even the simplest things. Even, even the mass that I was streaming, I couldn't do it anymore. Because of, uh, you know, and even in Father Henry's parish, when I tried to do that, I was constantly chased away from the church because other people needed to use the building. And it, again, triggered that feeling of like, oh my gosh, even this I cannot do. And it was so frustrating and so painful to feel, um, to feel 
robbed of everything that that constituted uh, that constituted my um, my identity. That I I didn't know what to do. What am I a priest for now? <laughs> you know, and uh, and and I think that this is part of you know intellectually I know how this works. I know that. Of course, God loves me and thinks I'm valuable. And as a priest, I'm valuable even though I don't do anything. Think of hermits that live in the mountains or on the French countryside, hidden away. And aren't, aren't they valuable? Aren't they useful? They are not producing anything. They're not doing anything. They don't even have a parish. And still, you know, I would say they are very valuable. And their love for God is what what makes this world a better place and uh, so anyway God does not measure his love in terms of you know he doesn't give us higher marks Uh, we don't rank higher in his esteem and love if we're more useful it's he loves anyone regardless of of how much you do uh, or or the status uh, you have in a group or whatever so the only thing that matters is if you love them back. That, that is what, what matters. I think these birds concur with me. <laughs> they don't do anything useful other than flying around and eating bugs. And yet God loves them too, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, that, it's, it's, again, I have to uh, reprogram myself by telling myself every time I have these feelings of like I'm not doing enough, uh, I, I got to remind myself of the fact that, well, and yet you are valuable. And probably you're helping more people than you think. Because a lot of the work that I do, uh, I never see the fruit of that. Because people live on the other side of the planet. Or uh, a lot of the things that you do, maybe only in, this, in the life after this life, we will see how that impacted other people. So we are not to judge ourselves. Just as we are not supposed to judge others. Because we only see the outside. So, that's, that's another way for me to cope with this losing everything. And now I'm trying to look at, well, look at what I can do. I, I, I build a... <laughs> the reason that I'm here in Wageningen now, and I'm pacing back and forth in front of the store, because I want to finish this recording before I go in, is that I'm going to get a few candles and some other, uh, maybe even a white tablecloth, if I can find it, for my makeshift chapel that I built and as you've been able to see on YouTube uh, I started at the beginning of Advent uh, to stream masses from my own home uh, from the studio where I also record the podcast and the thing is it was just super cramped and there was there were so many lamps and everything so the other day I actually moved my bed from the uh, the previous bedroom into the Lego room uh, and the reason was very practical. The radiator was making a ticking noise uh, close to my head, and it just woke me up every every night. And I was fed up with it, so I was like, I'm going to move my bed into the other room. So I rearranged furniture, and it actually works really well, and I sleep a lot better in that room than in the middle room of the house. So then I thought, hey, I can move the chapel to this middle room, and then I can create a set so that I have more room in my studio and it doesn't feel so cramped and I can just leave uh, the camera and all the wiring, etc. in that middle room. And I, it just helps me to 
have less clutter in the house. So uh, that's why I'm here. And then I'm thinking, well, you know what? I can go for a walk, get myself some candles. And, and that's going to be my goal for today, uh, is, is, is arranging that chapel so that it looks nice and, and is atmospheric and at the same time helps me to manage it better in my house. And, of course, I could do a ton of other things on a day like this. And when I wake up, I have this choice. Uh, you know, what am I going, going to put on my calendar? And one of the advantages of uh, having this uh, journaling routine is that it helps me to, uh, to think before I act. So I write down my priorities, what are the most important things, you know. And, and then what is truly important and urgent, I put that in my calendar. So it's the, uh, it's the, if you ever wonder, you know, what should I do? You know, this is quadrant system where you put like what is important and urg- urgent, what is important but not urgent, what is urgent and not important, and what is nor urgent nor important. The last thing you shouldn't even consider doing. But what is urgent and not so important you can delegate that. And what is important but not so urgent, you can put that, you know, on a long-term schedule. What is urgent and important, that's what should be on your calendar uh, first. So, uh, and that helps you, kind of helps me to choose. Because when I, once I move from my journal to my calendar, which is part of the morning routine, uh, I realize I only have a few blocks during which I'm supposed to work. The other, like I have this prefab calendar um, every week where it shows me, and this is from the post-COVID recovery, um, uh, what is it, um, therapy that I got, is like um, program everything. Pro- also program the times that you're supposed to rest. Um, put in your calendar, if possible, the times that you sleep, the hours that you sleep. Try to create a predictable daily routine and that will give your system the time to rest and to recover. And uh, so that's what I keep doing. And then I know, well, I only have six hours reserved for working. And I do that deliberately. I don't put eight hours, even though I often work much more. But it's, again, to create margin to have uh, at least every day two hours that I can do other stuff that is important. <laughs> so it's not, ev- not everything should be urgent and important. So uh, knowing that I only have six hours uh, to fill with activities, I know that I have to prioritize and choose. And that helps me to not fall in the trap of like, oh, I got to be busy, I got to do stuff, I want to do this, I want to do that. Shouldn't I do that? Shouldn't I do that? Um, the, the whole Messiah complex that a lot of my colleagues and I included sometimes suffer from. Like, the world will go to its perdition, if that's how you say it. It will go to hell unless I am here to save it. Uh, that, that comes from that, that inner drive. Uh, like, we want to feel that we're good enough. We want to feel that we're useful. And we feel uncomfortable when when nobody praises us. We crave this adrenaline, this, this uh, uh, whatever chemical that is released when we get praised, when we get a thumbs up, a like, or whatnot, acknowledgement. It enhances our social status, etc., etc., etc. 
It's all a way for us to to combat our anxiety. But the, the better way to do that is to just realize that that anxiety is not necessary at all because it's good enough as it is, you know? <laughs> just do the things that are urgent and important, and that's enough. And let other people... <laughs> And, and in this case, I would say, let Jesus do the rest. Just do your best. So um, that's, that's how I try to get rid of this uh, uh, scatterbrain that always thinks uh, it's not enough and I have to do more. It's still tricky, the, the discernment. You know, like the third, the third thing, big thing that I lost, of course, this year was my, my work, my job as a television maker, uh, documentary maker. I'm uh, working on the last episode that I'll ever... Well, maybe not ever. Never say never again. <laughs> but uh, this is one of the last episodes that I've been uh, contractually ordered to do. Um, and so I'm. Th- that's going to be finished uh, probably tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. And that, that'll be it. Again, losing my work as a visible priest on TV that uh, hopefully has been able to to project a positive image of what Catholics do instead of just always the negative, uh, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the common thing that people associate nowadays with, with Catholics and faith. It's like, ah, oh, it's all terrible and it's, it's, it's good that it's over. Um, I, I've always tried to show, well their faith is inspiring people and it's helping to make this world a better place also for people that are not Catholic. So anyway, losing that immediately triggers this feeling of anxiety like, but what am I good for? You know, what is my job? I don't have a parish anymore. I lose my TV job and then I have to tell myself, but dude, this is creating space for you to be even more impactful because now you won't have to divide your attention on so many different tasks. You can just go full, full force um, towards the the international audience on social media, and that's been the bedrock of what you've been doing since the, the early days of your Star Wars, you know, fan website. Uh, you, I've always had uh, thousands and thousands of people enjoying my geekiness and and relating to. Uh, what I enjoyed and, and, and I was able to help a lot of those people because I, you know, I was able to build a bridge. Now that I don't have this, this responsibility to do that for a Dutch audience that is uh, church-going, speaks Dutch, uh, is more than half female and 70-plus, I mean, they're lovely people. But it is a totally different audience than the audience that I reach through social media on YouTube. Now, I can focus fully on that big worldwide audience, and I know that if I do what I've been doing for 15 years on TV, and I do that on a worldwide level, I have no doubt that people are going to be able to relate to that and going to enjoy that. So, why am I complaining that I lose everything? Why this anxiety? This is a huge opportunity. I should be thankful (laughs) that... The, the plug was pulled. And of course, there are many reasons to, be, to think negative and uh, 
that that I, I wouldn't say that I was completely immune to this thought of like, oh my gosh, I worked so hard for 15 years and now, you know, they, they canceled the program and they don't even want to hear my thoughts and, and ideas and they're just doing and now I'm just completely dependent on what they come up with and whether I want to do that or not. And like this is the kind of negative uh, thinking that doesn't bear any fruit. On the contrary, it just makes you more anxious, more resentful, less creative. Look at the situation as it is. This is a huge opportunity and it also helps me to uh, to arrange my life and my work in a way that is not harming my health as much as it, as the TV work used to do. Because uh, it's been relentless. So, again, trying to reprogram those neural pathways, and that will, that will take some time, uh, because, you know, it sometimes took years for those, um, for your brain to, to find uh, all these reaction patterns and... Uh, and, and, you know, we've been a child for, for so long. And uh, so reprogram is not instant. But the moment you start doing that on a consistent, in, a, in a consistent way, it will change you. And it has already changed me. Uh, over the, this, this year has been a year of, of letting go. But it's also been a year of huge gains in insight and uh, in uh, a sense of purpose. Uh, I may... I think great strides in in having faith, literally having faith that this is, you know, not just such random bad luck. On the contrary, losing my house, losing my home, losing the parishes. Look at what it brought me. I'm living here in Binnacombe in this beautiful area. I'm getting to meet so many new people and they're wonderful and, you know, people cannot wait to pay me a visit like burglars. They're just trying to break in all the time. I'm so popular. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but it's true. I, I got so much in return. Uh, and that's what I want to focus on. And that is what I'm going to focus on. And, you know, I'm starting to feel a sense of calm and, and uh, contentment with the situation. I'm thinking, you see... All that worrying and all that anger and frustration, it was good for nothing. Uh, whereas now, it's all turning out well. And sure, there are still challenges, but that's just what they are. They're not, you know, you make traumas yourself in a certain way. You can also look at the situation, not always, but in many cases, you can choose to reinterpret or reframe what happens to you. In, uh, in, the, in, the, in the perspective of an opportunity and a chance. So, um, one final thing that I've learned uh, is also that this analysis paralysis is part of my problem. Uh, as you know, I often have trouble uh, getting started. Like, I, I do so much research before I buy anything, for instance... Uh, I, I read like a 5,000 reviews and then even then I'm still like hesitating. Should, uh, do I do the right thing? Should I buy this or not? And then people are telling me, well, if you spend all that time just working, you could have just <laughs> made like 10 times the amount of money that it costs you now or that you save. And that's true for work as well. 
I'm always thinking, you know, shouldn't I do more research? What's going to be the purpose of my YouTube channel? And I get all anxious. Like, am I, am I catering to the right niche? Should I put Lego on my main YouTube site, etc.? And then in the end, I do nothing. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm Mr. Uh, reaction to Star Wars. I should react to this or that trailer. I know that my audience will, will love that and they enjoy that. It's, it builds a bridge. And I'm like, well, but, but I cannot react to this TV episode without re-watching it and taking notes and having something to say. And I completely uh, fall into analysis paralysis. I don't do anything because I'm so overthinking everything. And... Uh, again, that, that too is part of this fear, I think, of failing and not being good enough. And the only way out of that conundrum is by trying and just by doing. That's how you learn. That's how you improve. You don't get to be a, a Michelin chef on day one. You have to mess up for years in the kitchen. To, to, to But you will get better. And so one of the ways in which I'm trying to break that pattern of analysis paralysis is by writing these book reviews and it's intimidating and I noticed how difficult it was in the beginning to just write down and I'm, I don't want to spend more than 10 minutes writing a review but to write down what I think in, when I record a podcast I don't have any trouble telling you what I thought about a certain movie why? because I feel like oh I'm just telling my friends you know a podcast is something very informal very personal these people know me and it's just a podcast you know it's not written and now that i'm writing these reviews on goodreads i'm thinking oh my gosh everybody's gonna be able to read this review and i I need to give it more thought but then by telling myself i only have 10 minutes to write this review i'm forcing myself to just speak my mind and then oftentimes i just press post and i was like well it's maybe not the best review but at least this is what comes to my mind. And who cares? It's just a review. Do it. And uh, I've gotten a lot out of that already. And I'm thinking, you know what? Next step, YouTube. Next step is going to have that stay, same gut, that same, the, the same guts, I should say, the same courage when it comes to recording uh, my commentaries on YouTube. And instead of always wondering, oh, is it good enough? Shouldn't I do more? Should I... Oh, come on, just record it. People will watch it. If they don't watch it, you'll have important data as well. You'll have to do something else. But there's, nobody's going to tell you, oh, wow, that was not a very good YouTube video. Uh, usually that's not even why people watch my stuff. Because they are trying to connect with me. And apparently um, I help people to be positive and to look at the bright side of things. That's one of the, I think one of the reasons that these reaction videos that I record from time to time are so popular. It's like, oh my gosh, finally we have someone who's not cynical about this, who can just be like a child. And I know that that is why a lot of people follow me. So this, this childlike wonder, that's what I should focus on. And it's not about... The, not even the originality of my analysis. The people are not waiting for me to do like an hour-long breakdown of uh, the late, latest episode of Hawkeye. Maybe if I'm inspired, sure, by all means record it. But th- that's, they, they just want to be able to see someone who, who loves the series just as much as they do. So, uh, and I think the only way for me to get going and is, uh, first of all, 
look at the opportunity, I finally have less work. So I have more time to read, watch trailers and record stuff for YouTube. So, and then the second thing is, uh, be yourself is being yourself is more important than having a lot to say. Usually I have way more to say than I think I have. If you've seen my uh, analysis reaction video to the first episode of Wheel of Time, my gosh, I think I thought I was going to record like a five-minute reaction and it turned into like a 50-minute <laughs> breakdown. So, and that's the same thing with preaching. Like when I have, do a homily, usually I just open my mouth and I have stuff to say. <laughs> and it's... You know, if you've ever seen one of my masses um, on YouTube, uh, there is not one single homily that I ever prepared. Sure, I came up with like, oh, maybe I can do something with The Hobbit or whatever. But I don't write my, my homilies. I, I, it's just, I don't know. I, I, know, what, I know that I can say something and, and, and it, will, it will flow. That's how it works. So... Anyway, I should have more confidence that that is also going to work when I do other stuff on YouTube as well. And by doing, that's how these new pathways will form and I will get more and more comfortable in front of the camera and, uh, and better at what I do. That's what I wanted to share with you. Now, I'm going, before the store closes, I'm going into the store, get my candles and stuff. And, uh, well, you'll soon be able to see the result on my YouTube page at Father Roderick. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for accompanying me on this uh, drizzly walk. And uh, we'll talk to each other soon. Take care and God bless.